Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1035. Our, uh, our family once toured the Bureau of uh, Engraving and Printing. Uh, that's where the government prints our, our money. And most fascinating for me was learning about all the security features uh, that mark each, each bill. You've got these embedded watermarks and optical varying ink and fibers that glow under UV lighting and 3D hologram strips. And each security feature adds protection against counterfeit bills. An eye that's trained to recognize features of the true bill can discern the counterfeit bill in seconds. In a similar way, revelation exists to train our eye to discern the truth from the counterfeit. In chapter 12, we learned of a dragon who wars against the church. The dragon is Satan. But Satan works through the beast. The beast represents earthly kings and kingdoms who, who hate Christ. One of the beast's tactics was counterfeiting the lamb. Today we learn that this beast doesn't work alone. He has a religious sidekick. He has a messenger who's very skilled at deception. He's very good at persuading people to go with the counterfeit, stick with the beast. But that's why God inspired chapter 13. This vision trains our eye to recognize the counterfeit so that we're more equipped to stick with the true Savior who is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So let's read God's Word, starting in verse 11, that it might train our eye. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon that exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, 
the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Father, this passage calls us to wisdom. So grant wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you. Amen. So I'm going to make three observations about uh, the second beast here, and then one one exhortation about uh, wisdom and discerning the beast's number. Okay, so first, let's look at the beast's character as false prophet. The beast's character as false prophet. Verse 11 Uh, you notice, begins like verse 1 of chapter 13, only here the second beast rises from the earth instead of the sea. So you've got a sea beast and a land beast. Uh, If you've ever read Job chapters 40 and 41, you also encounter two beasts, right? The Leviathan, the dragon from the sea, uh, and then the behemoth from the land, and they are described in ways that show that, that uh, they are beasts that no human can tame. Perhaps John uses Job's imagery to show how threatening this beast is, but also how we need God's help in order to defeat him. Also, earth and sea in Revelation represent the inhabited world, and so we see here Satan stirring up trouble from, from both domains. And when he does stir up trouble, he brings forth a beast with two horns like a lamb, and yet it speaks like a dragon. And this gets to the heart of who he is. In Revelation, the only other lamb is Christ. The only other dragon is Satan. So the beast presents himself as a lamb, as a savior of sorts, as a Christ replacement, but he speaks the lies of Satan. In chapter 12, verse 9, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world, but here we learn of Satan's mouthpiece on earth. He is a false prophet. In fact, uh, moving forward in Revelation, uh, that's what he's called. He's never referred to Again, as the beast, he's referred to as the false prophet. In chapter 16, verse 13, uh, he is the false prophet, and unclean spirits exit his mouth to deceive all the kings of the whole world. In chapter 19, verse 20, he is the false prophet who deceives those who belong to the beast. And so he comes in sheep's clothing, but he speaks the dragon's lies. He is Trixie. Second, notice the false prophet's alliance with the beast. The false prophet's alliance with the beast, verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, back in chapter 13, verse 2, Uh, you remember how the dragon gives the beast his authority, right? On earth, that authority then 
played itself out in political and, and military power, right? Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? In verses 4 and 5, the beast amazes people with his ability to conquer and rise to power even after de- uh, a defeat. And here, John adds another layer. It's a religious one, okay? So alongside the political and military power, we get a religious layer here. Uh, in Revelation, true prophets bear witness to Jesus' lordship, but this prophet supports a counterfeit lord. He promotes the beast's authority. When we studied the beast last Sunday, we noted from chapter 17 that he symbolizes numerous arrogant kings and kingdoms who hate Christ and persecute God's people. So the one beast has many manifestations. The false prophet symbolizes those who rise in history to support the beast's lordship and lies. For example, John writes this when Rome has the power. In Revelation, we could even say that John presents Rome as one manifestation of the beast. That's clear in chapter 17 with the seven hills. Rome was an empire of widespread moral corruption. Uh, You you find rampant idolatry. Rome exploited people economically and even turned image bearers into slaves. But that's not what Rome spread about itself. No, the, the false prophet spreads a different message. Rome is where you find peace and prosperity. They even had a goddess named Roma. And she personified the the Roman state. And her image was stamped on coins. And her statues adorned buildings. And when athletes competed, she was prominently displayed. And she looks like this strong, virtuous woman. She's wrapped in in, in battle garments. And sometimes she's seen as reclining on on Rome's seven hills. And and the messaging constantly to the the, uh, first century Roman citizens was was Rome is strong, Rome is right, Rome takes care of you, Rome is your peace. But that's the false prophet at work. The political and military side of the beast joins with a religious witness to the beast's greatness. Now those reading Revelation know better. Revelation trains your eye to spot the counterfeit. According to chapter 17, Rome isn't a virtuous woman. She's an idolatrous prostitute drunk with the blood of the saints. But for those whose eye is not trained, they will believe the counterfeit. They will worship the beast. And this is the business of the false prophet to keep people trusting in false saviors. Look next at the false prophet's tactics, his tactics. For starters, he pretends to have divine authority by using signs. Verse 13, 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. That sounds a whole lot like Elijah, doesn't it? First Kings. He faced the prophets of, of Baal, and they couldn't call down fire. Elijah did call down fire, and God proved him true, and the other prophets were false. But here, the false prophet succeeds. It's like he's copying Elijah, and it makes him look legit. That's not uncommon in Scripture. You can think back to Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus 7 and 8. They replicate some of the very miracles that Moses himself performed. Deuteronomy 13 speaks of false prophets performing great signs. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24, 24. He says, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's how convincing they are. The false prophet does the same here. The major difference is his goal. His signs lead people away from worshiping the Lamb. And that brings us to another tactic. He promotes idolatrous allegiance to the beast. Verse 14. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this is how we know he's false. Right? His goal is idolatry. In John's day, people set up images of of the emperor in in local temples, and citizens uh, would put them up in places where they gathered for business or sport. It was a sign of of loyalty, and and it won you favor with the emperor and and his ruling uh, cohorts. But the false prophet takes it even further in verse 15. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. One obvious critique of idols throughout Scripture is they don't walk or talk or hear or see. And yet here, the false prophet seems to to overcome that weakness somehow. Of course, behind the scenes is something far more twisted. Four times in Revelation... John links idolatry with sorcery, manipulating the supernatural to to get results. Sometimes drugs are included. We also learned from chapter 9, verse 20, that that idols are connected to demons, that, that a demon is actually behind the idol, and demons do speak, as we know from other places in Scripture. And so by tricking them into idolatry, the false prophet is leading them into the the, the demonic. The false prophet also persecutes those who refuse to worship the beast, second part of verse 15, so that he might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now that's right from Daniel 3, isn't it? A story many of you have heard before where Nebuchadnezzar, right, makes an image of himself. And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, in in Daniel's prophecy, 
is a beastly king. He orders the people to make an image for himself, and, and anyone who doesn't worship the image must be cast into the fiery furnace. Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fear God. They do not bow to the image. So Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into the fire. One way to get people to comply is to threaten them with death. That's how beastly rulers get things done. They put a gun to your head and they say, bow or we take your life. Many don't even get to that point, though, where the rulers are pointing the gun at the head. They already fear the loss of their life long beforehand, and they just keep conforming to the beast's idolatrous ways. They compromise and compromise to keep their lives in this world. It's a, it's a form of slavery, right? Satan works this way. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, Satan is talked about as one who has the power of death, and he holds it over people to keep them enslaved. And here we see the false prophet doing the same thing. He enslaves people to the beast's agenda using the fear of death. One more tactic that John sees, the false prophet pressures everyone with economic, let's call them incentives, in quotation marks. Penalties, incentives, right? Verse verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, in a second, we'll get to the beast's number. For now, notice the the economic nature of his manipulation. Those not marked with the beast's name can't buy or sell. Now, there's endless speculation on the nature of this mark, you know, from tattoos to computer chips. Most of it's ridiculous since it lacks attention to this genre's symbolism. We know what type of mark this is. It is a spiritual mark evidenced by, the, by who we serve and worship. Right? We saw this in chapter 7, verse 3. The idea comes from Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, where God marks the foreheads of the men who weep over the, the people's idolatry. Also, in chapter uh, 14, verse 1, which is the next paragraph, Gives you some context. God's people have the Lamb's name written on their forehead. So it's marking them out, setting them apart as God's heavenly priesthood. How does their mark show? In chapter 14, verse 1, they have the Lamb's name, right? Written on their foreheads. How does their mark show? Chapter 14, verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's how you know them. Those people stand in direct contrast to these people, to the people of the beast in chapter 13. These people have a mark too. This is another way he's trying to imitate God, right? He's, he's got his own priesthood marked out. 
on earth. And they evidence that mark by who they serve and worship. They do not weep over idolatry. They worship the beast's image. And for doing so, they benefit financially. Now, in the first century, Rome, you had these numerous trade guilds that ran the economy. They were in control of where the money goes. And membership to these guilds was bound up with idolatry. Right? If you wanted to make it, you got chummy with them at the temples. And you sprinkled the little incense and did whatever else to to fit in. But for those who follow the Lamb, life got much harder. They follow the lamb, so they set those things aside. They refused to participate in them, so you couldn't sell your products or, or your skills to make money. You couldn't maintain a job. You couldn't buy groceries, and when that means your kids might not eat, you can imagine the pressure to conform. You could even imagine other Christians say, just offer the incense. Sprinkle it. You got to eat. And that's how the false prophet tricks people into worshiping the beast. Just compromise already. Just do it. Have you noticed the mounting complexities here? You have the political sphere at work with military power and a religious witness, and that's now mixed in with economic oppression. So the beast has this whole interconnected web that demands conformity. You can see this play out in the book of Acts, chapter 16. You remember when Paul has the slave girl with an unclean spirit following him around. And you've got guys making money off of her. And he casts out the evil spirit, and they get mad. Because now they can't make the money anymore, and so they go get the authorities. You see, it's all interconnected, the beast's work, right? He can enslave people to money and things so that they, they would prefer to have their money and the demonic than Jesus and freedom from sin. And they're all working together. And that's what we're seeing here. We don't just need endurance. That's what verse 10 called us to. We also need wisdom to sort through all of this. Uh, Chad and some other brothers have been teaching the the boys in Outbound about wisdom. And one of the things they keep telling them uh, as a definition for wisdom is wisdom is skill necessary to to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. We We need the skill... Necessary to live a life pleasing to the Lord in this kind of world. With the beast working through this interconnected web of relationships to demand conformity. We need wisdom to live in that kind of world. 
discern the counterfeit and sort through it all. And so that's where John goes next in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's end there. This, this, is a, this is a challenging text, right? This is a challenging verse. The, the, the best approaches, I think, come down to two, though, okay? John's command to calculate the beast's number may appeal to an, an ancient system called Gematria. And in Gematria, a number is associated, is, you know, is assigned to each letter of the alphabet. And so in Hebrew, you know, in Hebrew, Aleph is one and Bet is two. And once you pass nine, the numbers increase by tens and then later by hundreds. And, and then you, you calculate the number of one's name by adding all the letter values. Okay, this is a real deal. You can look it up. It's going on in John's day and uh, usually you find it in graffiti on the walls of the nonconformist society. Um, now, people can get carried away when it comes to calculating the beast's name. I mean, for real, you can, you can look these up online. Uh, you got anything from Ronald Reagan to Barney the Dinosaur. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. Um, Stuff, But what's nice about Revelation and what distinguishes it about other gematria in, in his day is that John provides the literary context that limits your options. So he tells us the beast's traits, for example. He is a blasphemous leader. He, per, he persecutes the church. His, head, his heads represent seven hills which doubtlessly allude to Rome. And so when you line up the traits with the name that equals 666, the best option here is Nero. Nero Caesar. Transliterated into Hebrew, his name equals 666. In other words, if you want a historical example of the beast's rule, look at Nero. Now, one weakness to this approach is that it requires an odd spelling of Nero and also transliterating his name to Hebrew. And that leads others to approach 666 as a theological symbol. As a theological symbol. It's less about calculating letter values and more about interpreting. That's another way you can translate that. Let him interpret the number of the beast. It's more about interpreting what the number is picturing. Okay? And so John uses numbers like this elsewhere in Revelation, including the next verse with the 144,000. Also, the beast represents multiple kings versus just one named individual. There's also a translation issue that favors the symbolic approach. The ESV there, has, it has, for it is the number of a man. And that leads you to think individual, right? It's the number of a man. But it can also read, for it is man's number. It is man's number, meaning it's more about the quality, the number of 
represents. And this would fit how the beast repeatedly attempts to counterfeit God. In Revelation, the number seven is usually associated with God, the Lamb, or the Holy Spirit. The only time it's not is when the beast tries to counterfeit God. But 666 exposes his true nature. He always falls short of seven. He always falls short of God and what God achieves in the Lamb. So those are two of the best approaches. I think I'll leave it for you to decide. Either way, John unveils the beast here. We shouldn't think of John as cloaking things in more mystery like, ooh, you you have to have a special knowledge. He's actually unveiling things. People in his day know exactly what he's talking about. John unveils the beast here. His true colors show in the rule of Nero or in any other power that attempts to counterfeit God. So what then does it mean to calculate or interpret the number of the beast? It means we must discern the beast based on the revelation God gave to John. Okay, We must take the images of this book and let them so train our outlook on the world that when the beast raises his head in politics, and when the beast raises his head in religious witness, and when the beast raises his head in economic incentives, we can spot him from a mile away. We can discern the counterfeit. And so the question for us is, Are you wise to discern the beast? Do you share the understanding that God has granted to John and then delivered to us? Have you allowed John's vision to train your eye to spot the counterfeit offers of the beast? It's very popular right now to divide humanity into groups. And for one group, because of some identity or what they've suffered or experienced, to perceive themselves as never in the wrong, while the opposite group is never in the right. Some call it identity politics. Chapter 13 challenges that view of the world by showing how everyone is susceptible to the beast and the false prophet. Notice again the list of people in verse 16. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked. Also recall verse 7. Authority was given over it, given it over every tribe, not just some of every tribe and people and language and nation. And so we see no group is immune to the beast's lies. All have the same problem. What matters most isn't your group identity on earth, but whether you belong to the Lamb in heaven. So who do you belong to? That's one thing Revelation does with these Just black and white, right? You got the city of God and the city of man. You have the woman in 
chapter 12 and the woman who's, on a, who's a harlot in chapter 17. And he, he's putting everything. And now you've got the lamb and his priesthood and the beast and his priesthood. So which one do you belong to is a major focus of Revelation. That's where John draws the lines, and those are the ultimate lines to consider in life. What matters most in life is belonging to the Lamb. Without Jesus' redeeming blood, everyone follows the beast. The Lamb alone conquers the beast because the Lamb alone conquered Satan, who's behind the beast. So when you belong to the Lamb, His victory becomes yours. So do you belong to Him? Are you marked with the Lamb's name? Are you trusting in the Lamb's blood to save you? If not, then today is the day of salvation. Do not hesitate. Don't be lured any longer by the beast. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved from your sins. If you do belong to the Lamb, I think this text calls us to evaluate our allegiance to the Lamb. Evaluate our allegiance to the Lamb. We, you know, we, we say with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. But circumstances will test that allegiance. One way that chapter 13 tests our allegiance relates to politics. Right? The, the beast uses political power, and the false prophet deceives people into trusting his politics. I talked about this earlier with Rome and the messages they were spreading. As Christians, we have a responsibility to critically engage the political sphere. In America, you might even say it's a privilege we get to participate in. But if not careful, that engagement can deteriorate into an idolatrous allegiance to human power. On the left, the government tends to replace God. On the right, the individual replaces God. From all sides, we are pushed to trust in man's power to save instead of in God's power to save. So what about you? Do you have mixed allegiances with the state or with some political leader? How do you respond when others criticize the unrighteousness of your leader or your platform or your nation? Is there kind of this knee-jerk reaction to immediately defend or excuse them? Remember the messaging of Rome. Rome said that they kept people free and safe and prosperous. But behind Rome was a beast who devours and a false prophet that spreads lies. Another test relates to the fear of death. The false prophet enslaves people to the beast using the fear of death. So if the beast requires you to bow, would you be able to resist even to the point of death? It's a real question we need to wrestle with. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, could, could you say, my God will deliver me, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. 
or worship the image you've set up? Would you be able to say it? My God will deliver me. But if not, I will not bow to your flag. Are you going to be able to say those kinds of things? If you're not there, I would encourage you to meditate further on the truths of the gospel. Truths like Revelation 1.18, where we see that Jesus already entered death before us and overcame it. He, was a, he died, but behold, he is alive forevermore, right? Truths like Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. At death, you don't lose fellowship, any fellowship with Jesus. Your fellowship with Jesus actually gets better. Romans 8.38, death cannot separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus is risen, we will rise too. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. And so we need to meditate on these and take these home and, and make them part of our hearts and let these truths strengthen our allegiance to Jesus even if we were to face death. And then there's also the test of economic pressure. Right? The false prophet pressures people to give in using economic incentives. Right, And in a society saturated with materialism, we need to be especially careful. If our allegiance to money is greater, we will not stand when the pressure comes. We will not stand if the government starts taking things away. That's why Jesus confronts the Christians in Laodicea. If you remember back in chapter 3, they got so used to the wealth and the comforts of Rome that their allegiance to Jesus waned. And we are susceptible to the same. Craig Coaster has a great question to ask. Is your identity determined by the power to purchase goods in the market or by the power of the Lamb whose blood has purchased you for God's kingdom? Is your identity determined by the power to purchase goods in the market or by the power of the Lamb whose blood purchased you for God's kingdom? So test yourself in these three areas to see how your allegiance to Christ may need correction uh, or, or strengthening. And then finally, train your eye to discern the counterfeit. Train your eye to discern the counterfeit. You see, false prophets are usually tricksy. They don't just say, here's a heresy that you should believe. No, they come in sheep's clothing. On the surface, they seem harmless, but beneath the surface... They sow the seeds of doubt in God's word. Did God really say? Is that really going to happen? They include just enough of the truth to keep you locked in, right? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Then he quotes a psalm about how the angels will bear him up. There's enough truth in there that, yeah, 
God will vindicate his king. Just not like that. He's got enough truth to keep you locked in while slipping in the errors and slowly lead you astray. Jesus is great, they might say. Now let me show you the deeper things of Christianity. Or they might say, yes, Jesus saved, but what's the problem with a little bit of incense to Caesar? Jesus knows you have to be a citizen of Rome, too. He knows you have to buy and sell. He'll understand. It's okay. Conform. Stay relevant. And slowly, the church over time gets comfortable with the world's idols. That's what the false teachers were doing in Pergamum and Thyatira, chapter 2 of Revelation. He called them Balaam and Jezebel. They had convinced the church that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And we're just as vulnerable. Repeatedly, the apostles warned of false teachers rising within the church. Even in his letters, John speaks of antichrists infiltrating the church. So how do we train ourselves? We don't don't want to fall into it. How do we train ourselves to discern the counterfeit? One way is to guard yourself from putting too much stock in signs signs and numbers. Guard yourself from putting too much stock in signs and numbers. The false prophet is doing great signs. He's also got a great following, doesn't he? Everybody, every tribe and tongue. He's got, he's got rich and the poor. They're all coming, listening to him. And so we need to see past the signs and past the numbers to the substance of what someone is teaching. Don't get distracted by signs and and numbers, too impressed by signs and numbers. What are they teaching? You also need to saturate your mind with the Bible. Saturate your mind with the Bible. Now, I don't just mean you know some Bible verses to support your positions. Heretics throughout church history did the same thing. Corrupt Political figures use the Bible. I mean, Putin quoted John 3.16 at his rally in Moscow last March. Satan quotes the Bible too when tempting Jesus. So being biblical doesn't mean you just have a lot of verses in your pocket to support your position. You must know how the Bible fits together, and you must know how the Bible is saying what it says, and you must know how the Bible centers everything on Jesus Christ and becoming more and more like Him. In order to get there, though, you've got to read it, and read it, and read it, and read it in not just a line on the bottom of a devotional you flip to the next one. You've got to read chunks of the Bible and study it and read it again and then read it with your brothers and sisters and talk about it and wrestle over it and learn how to think God's thoughts after Him. 
Also, one way we can do this is evaluate the goals of a particular teaching. Evaluate the goals. All right? The false prophet's goal, we saw, is idolatry. Right? It, it's replacing the lamb with other saviors. So when you hear someone teach, and I don't just mean in formal settings like school uh, or some podcast, right? I mean when you hear someone teach through media, through movies. They are teaching something through a movie. A movie is teaching you. It's spreading a worldview. Right? When you watch a movie or when you read a fantasy novel or when you listen to a news outlet or a president's speech, when you hear your pastors preach, what are the goals? You need to ask that. What does the teaching lead to? Does it lead you to trust in the Lamb or does the message lead you to trust in other saviors like government or money or even self? Is the goal of their teaching fellowship with the triune God, with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit? Or is the goal a boost in self-esteem? Does their teaching draw people to the exclusive worship of the Lamb? Or does their teaching compromise the worship of the Lamb? Are they seeking fulfillment in Christ alone? Or are they telling you to put your trust in Christ? Oh yeah, and all, the, and all these other things too. Jesus also says that you will know false teachers by their fruits. In Matthew 7. So another question to tease out here would be, what is the fruit of their lives? Now, Trey will discuss that more in a couple weeks from Matthew 7. So I don't have to explain much here. But what is the fruit of their lives? These are a few things. It's not exhaustive, but a few things to consider as you train your mind to discern good from evil. The only way you will see the counterfeit is to know the truth and to cultivate wisdom and understanding based on God's revelation to man. Chapter 13 of Revelation is God's revelation to man. Jesus delivered this vision to John, and then John wrote it down to protect you and me from the beast. It is God's gift to you. It is God's gift to help you discern the beast counterfeit so that you stick with the true Savior, the Lamb. The beast makes himself look like a savior, but he only takes life to further enslave people. The lamb gave his life to free us from our sins and make us one with God and secure a new heaven and a new earth. He is the true one. He is the true savior. The lamb is who we worship. The lamb is who we follow. Wherever he goes, beloved, let us follow the lamb and not the beast. 
pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. Pray that we would take your word to heart and that you would use it to give us greater discernment in the days to come. Help us see through all the things that, in all, in all the things that we experience politically and uh, economically and uh, religiously. Help us to see through it all to discern the beast's lies and his counterfeits. Keep us holding fast to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.